0: Praise the Lord. Amen. We praise the Lord for a people who are determined to go on. Amen. If you could turn your Bibles to the book of Mark, we will continue with our series just marching through the book of, of Mark together. I'll tell you, I am so thrilled to be in the house of the Lord again, to be able to fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It is always a deep honor to be able to see the grace of the Lord on your face. Amen. Mark chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 13 through verse 21. If you could stand for the reading of God's word. We'll see that before verse 13 in verses 7 through 12, that Jesus was seeking to withdraw uh, to get away from the crowds with his disciples. And we'll see mentioned in those five verses, I believe three times, that great crowds were following him. And they were coming from everywhere. I mean, he's in northern Galilee, and they're coming all the way from Jerusalem, from, from the north, from the east to the west. This is a, a picture of, of uh, it reminds us a lot of the Old Testament, of Solomon, and how Solomon was, was a king who had great wisdom. And our people would come from all over to hear him speak and to see what God was doing through him. Jesus is the new Solomon, greater than Solomon. And he's not only a person who has wisdom, as we have read before in chapter two, that he is one who preaches as, as he has authority. One who speaks as, as no one who has ever seen. And how does he preach as if he is the one who has authority? He preaches as if he's the one who has authority because he is the author of life. Authority. He is the author of life. And not only does he preach as one who has authority but he also is doing miracles. He is healing people. Broken people. And not only is he healing broken people but he is exercising dominion over the demonic world. He is pushing back the realm of Satan one step at a time. So the Lord is speaking and preaching with authority. But to authenticate his authority, he's doing things that no one has ever been able to do. And we pick up in verse number 13. And it says, And he went up on the mountain, "...and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter." James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonaerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, and that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Let us pray. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I pray, Father God, that you would make your words sweet to us. Allow your words to be sweeter than Honey, allow us to testify with Jeremiah and say that your words were found and we ate them. Your words became the joy and the delight of our heart for we are called according to your name. O Lord of hosts, speak to us through your word. Chisel us through your word. Draw us through your word. Rescue us through your word. Give these hearts of ours life through your word. For it is our only hope. Be honored. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. not sure if you guys heard of the story of Brian and Julia Whitner. It is an amazing story that I read a couple weeks ago uh, about a man who is a reformed skinhead. A reformed skinhead. He was a leader of the skinhead movement in Michigan. And he uh, was all in into this movement. I mean all in. And one of the things that he did, him and his wife... Uh, Uh, They got tattoos in order to solidify that they were a part of this group. They tatted up their bodies. And he didn't just get a tattoo or two. He, I mean, tatted up his whole body, his arms, his legs, his torso, every single part of him, and even his face. His face was covered with tattoos. And they were racist tattoos. They were tattoos that had symbols and signs that, degraded minorities and people who were not of his race. But it's a fascinating story about how his heart began to get changed and how he rejected the movement. And after rejecting the movement and pretty much starting his life All over him and his wife, Julia, they had a a different perspective on race and ethnicity, and they they began to renounce their old feelings that they had towards minority groups. But the problem was, uh, stood before him, that his, his face was tatted up with these things. And he got so discouraged and, and he, he tried to find all kind of methods to see if he could take these tattoos off of his face. And it came to the point that he and his wife said, you know, it's just too expensive. We can't afford it. So he actually considered getting some acid and putting his face, submerging his face in acid and burning his skin off in order that the tattoos would not be there. To make a long story short, his wife began to desperately reach out to people. And it began to let his story be be made known. And a doctor heard about his story and committed to allowing him to have laser surgery to remove these tattoos off his face. After 25 painful surgeries, the tattoos that were once on his face no longer remained. As a result, he can't go into sunlight And his face often breaks out into deep rashes and hives. But he talks about how he is now free. How he is now a a new person. And what was interesting about the article was not just that he was transformed on the outside, but one article that I read, talked he actually talked about how the church, him and his wife getting grounded in the church, played a major role in his transformation. And how his church family, was supportive of him. As a result of leaving that movement, his life was now on the line as other skinheads and other racist groups that he partnered with now want and wanted him dead. He had to move from Michigan. He had to relocate. He couldn't tell people where he and his family was because he was constantly receiving death threats. But he did it. For the sake of change, he left this one community, joined another community, and now he has life. You know, Jesus in his text is introducing a new nation, a new community. Jesus is, is introducing a, a, a new people, a, a new way of life for people who were stuck in religion. People who were stuck in trying to find the approval of God and of man through their works. He is doing something radical here. He is introducing a, a new covenant. And he does so as we pick up in verse 13. And it says, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. So so Jesus calls out twelve apostles. And we know this, the calling of of these twelve disciples. But Luke chapter six, verse 12 and verse 13 adds something that Mark does not add. This wasn't just a a flippant decision. This wasn't Jesus uh, behaving like some of us if we're playing a a game of pickup basketball somewhere. Him just looking out of a crowd saying, you, 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 meet me on a mountain. This was something that Jesus knew was serious and that Jesus wanted to do according to the will of his father. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12 through 13, Jesus goes on, he's on a mountain and he is praying. And the Bible says that he went and he prayed all night and he continued to pray. Before choosing these 12 men, he went and got along with his father. And he prayed diligently, consistently, fervently, because he wanted to be in line with his father's will. Can you see Jesus? Fully man, yet fully God. Depending on his Father, while the rest of his disciples and the crowds are asleep, he is alone with his Father. He is communing with his Father. He is asking his Father to reveal to him those whom he wants to walk intimately with daily. And then he calls them. And who does he call? He calls those whom he desired. He calls those whom he desired. This reminds me much of salvation. Salvation is a gift from God. God chose us before the foundation of the world. He desired us and he called us out and set us apart from the world to be with him. A lot of people think that they chose God in and of themselves. We did not first choose God. God first chose us. And it is a privilege to serve this great, holy God. And look what he does on this mountain. And he appointed 12. He appointed 12. He looks throughout this group and he chooses 12. Now, some would say that the reason he chose 12 was because there was only 12 true disciples. That at this time, it was only these 12 who were truly sold out or committed to him. But that is not the case. Jesus had other disciples who would continue to follow him. In Acts chapter 1, we learn about two disciples. One's name is Joseph. The other's name is Matthias. Matthias. And this is after Jesus has ascended. In Acts chapter 1, we learn that these these other two disciples have been with Jesus from the very beginning. They're following him closely. But Jesus did not choose at this time to allow them to be in his inner circle, so to speak. So there are other committed people. We also read in the Gospels that Jesus had women constantly following him who were committed his mother and other women who were serving him, who was true disciples. But Jesus is setting these disciples apart for a specific task, a unique task, a powerful task, a great task. And as he does this, we want to know that Jesus was not electing twelve disciples just for the sake of picking 12 people. This number that Jesus chose was not a missionary strategy. It wasn't about specifically saying that this is how you grow a church or grow a ministry. You find 12 men and do exactly as I I did. It's not about that, 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 that perspective. Neither is it some allegorical meaning. Some people say, well, Jesus chose 12 because... Twelve throughout the scriptures means this, and this is why he chose them. Why did Jesus choose to reveal himself in a special way to twelve men? What is so important about twelve men? Why twelve disciples? Why not thirteen, fourteen, or fifteen? Well, I think it's important that we see this contextually, and it's important that we understand that Jesus choosing twelve men, this was a, a sign of judgment. This was a sign of judgment. This was a pronouncement of judgment. This was a pronouncement of a new kingdom. Now remember where we are in Mark. Jesus has been under extreme scrutiny. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, have been giving him an incredibly hard time. They're following him. They're questioning what he is doing. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, We see that they even attribute his miracles, the great things that he's doing. They are actually attributing his miracles to Satan. They're calling him Beelzebub. They're insulting him. They're rejecting him. Turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. This is a pronouncement of judgment on the old system, on old religion. In John chapter 9, Jesus has just healed a man who was born blind. And people thought that this man was born blind because he had sinned or because he had done something wicked or his parents had sinned. But Jesus is teaching them that this man was actually born blind in order that God would receive glory out of him. So he heals this man. And this man goes and he goes and he shares with everybody about what has happened to him and what has been done. And then in verse 35, we read these words. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He's talking to the man. And he answered and he said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So this man puts his faith in Jesus once Jesus reveals himself to him. And Jesus said this, listen to what he said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see, that they may see, and that those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him, they heard these things and they said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have, no, you would have not have guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. <laughs> A blind man can see Jesus. And the men who claim to be able to see and who claim to be able to know God are blind. They can't see The religious leaders, the learned, they cannot see Jesus. But the humble, the broken, those who cannot help themselves, who admit that they need help, they can see Jesus. See, the Pharisees were all about their religion. They were all about being Jews. They were all about Israel. Jesus calling 12 men specifically is a way of saying God is doing a new thing. God is building a new nation, a new community that is not built on the 12 tribes of Israel, so to speak. For we know that that is where they found their pride, in their lineage, in their tribe. So Jesus is pronouncing judgment saying, That doesn't matter. Look, I've got 12 different men. 12 others. In fact, these 12 apostles, these 12 men would be the foundation of the church. Jesus is establishing his church. He's establishing his community. And these 12 apostles would one day sit on a seat of judgment. Let's turn to Luke chapter 22, verse 29 through 30. Luke chapter 22. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 22. Looking at verse 28, he says, Speaking to the disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So these 12 disciples, in in a way, are almost, they're going to to actually sit on a judgment seat one day in a new millennium when Jesus comes and over Jesus' kingdom, and they are going to judge Israel. They're going to judge these 12 tribes. So these men are going to one day be exalted. And to a very high level, into a seat of judgment. Revelation chapter twenty-one, verse fourteen. Listen to what it says: And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. These twelve men, at least eleven of these twelve men, were going to be given positions of eminence. Positions of power. So, what is Jesus doing? As I said, he is forming a new community. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, really quick. Ephesians chapter 2, and let's look at verse 13. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. And the word of God says, But now in Christ Jesus you, who, were once, you who, were, who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Speaking of the Gentiles. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by establishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. So we know that the Jews, that Israel was God's chosen people, and they were proud of that. Now, Israel would reject Jesus mostly as a whole, and the Pharisees, as their religious leaders, were the ones that were leading them, the blind leading the blind. So Jesus is establishing something that is bigger than just Israel, bigger than just Jews. He's establishing a new community and he is saying, I am the true Israel. I am the one Israel. And those who come and put their faith and trust in me and in my blood are now a part of that community. It's not just about this ethnic group. It's about all ethnicities. It's about all nations. And that's the way that it was supposed to be from the beginning. When God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he called him to bless the nations. Let's continue to read. And might reconcile to, so making peace, I'm sorry, might re- reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross. He did this through, his cro- through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, both the Gentiles and the Jews. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So Jesus is building a new nation, a new civilization, so to speak, and the citizens are those who have looked to his cross, those who have looked to his blood in faith for redemption. He has torn down that wall of hostility. And he has built one new man. And this is built on the foundation of the apostles, on the preaching of these 12 that he has called and gathered on this mountain. So let's investigate these 12. Let's let's look at these men and let's let's see whom this foundation is built on. So we see and he appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that they might be with him and might send, and, and he might send them out to preach. So the, the word apostle simply means a messenger or a representative. So they are. He, Jesus is setting these men off to be his representative, to be uh, uh, his messengers. And, and here we see that this is a special call, a, a unique call, a call that was given to these men and that, that God is going to do a special work through. It is through their preaching that the church is going to be built. So we see, he says, so he called them in order that they might be with them, in order that they might spend quality time with them. He has a, a core group. And that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He called them in order that he might share life with them. In order that they might soak in him. He called them in order that they might share with him. And and share his message to others. He called them in order that they might shake up the world. So their call is to soak in him. Their call is to share his message. Their call is to shake up the world. What a beautiful, beautiful call. It is on the preaching of the apostles that the church is built. In the book of Acts, we see Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost, and he is preaching, and people come to know Jesus. All throughout the book of Acts, we see through their preaching of the gospel, sharing of the good news that people are coming to faith, in Jesus through their proclamation of salvation by grace and not by works through this preaching men are being shaped and changed now we see here that they have the authority to cast out demons <laughs> Jesus gave them authority over the natural realm, and they are doing supernatural things. This was a special mandate that were on these men to see signs as often as Jesus was able to do signs when he allowed them to go. So today, as Christians and as believers, we have power. We have power through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through the preaching of Jesus Christ, dead people are brought alive. But we also have power through prayer. When we pray, God does things. He does move. But we do not ordinarily see God moving in the same way through individuals as he did through these apostles. They had a special apostolic anointing and calling to do that. But God still heals, and God still works. I was listening to a gentleman, uh, a professor. He was telling a story about a, uh, another guy, who, a gentleman who was, who was well-known in the Southern Baptist Convention, who was well-respected and an author, and he said that this gentleman shared with him a story that recently happened to him on a mission field. He was on the mission field, and while he was on the mission field, he was preaching the gospel, and a gentleman came up to him and walked by him, and he had a, 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 a big tumor on his, on his shoulder. It was just huge. He said it was like a, a baseball or even bigger. And the gentleman, after he got done preaching, said, can your God heal this in front of a crowd of people, in front of a multitude of people? And the gentleman said, you know, at that point, I, I don't doubt the power of God, but at that point, I, I almost put my head down and said, oh, Lord. This guy is showing you up. So he looked at the gentleman. He stepped out on faith and he prayed for him. He put his hands on his shoulder and he said a prayer for him. He went back up. He said he concluded his message and he kind of walked away and said, man, I just made a fool of myself. While he was sitting in someone's home, someone knocked on the door. They opened the door and the gentleman said, do you remember me from earlier? He said, yeah. He said, I'm the one that had this big knot on my shoulder that I've had for years and that causes me great pain. And he says, look, the tumor's gone. Look at what God has done. Look at his power. Look at what he's able to do. In the Western world, we don't see probably as much of God's working through prayer miracles as in other parts of the world, especially third world countries and other places. But God is moving. (laughs) And he moves according to his will. These apostles were given this special anointing to do these things in order to authenticate the gospel message. The message that they were preaching was a a, a radical message. They were going completely against the religious system of their day. They were going completely against what their religious leaders were preaching. And the way that God got the attention of people was saying, not only are they coming with a message in, in word, But they are coming with a message in power, in power. So as we look at this new community, there's a a few things that we want to draw out of this text and, and then we'll go. Often when we see the apostles and when we think about the New Testament, we think about them as just these great saints, these unbelievable men of God who were able to turn upside down the world and their cities and their places because they were so extraordinary and because they were perfect people and things like that. Well, as we look at God's calling these 12 people, we want to pay attention to the fact that these people are really, these men are really ordinary people. These men are very ordinary people. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is that they were not impressive at all by the world's standards. They were not impressive at all especially when it came to theological training, okay? These were not specialists. They were not rabbis. They were not Sadducees. They were not scribes. They were not Pharisees. These men who we see listed in these texts were not whom uh, most people would have picked if they were going to start a spiritual movement. If I'm going to start a spiritual movement, I'm going to go for the smartest people I can find. I am. I'm going to go for the most intelligent people I can find, the people who have just, just, just no different languages. That's not who God went for. In this group, we see seven fishermen, people who devoted their lives to a specific trade. In this list of men that we see, we see a tax collector, and we talked about that. Matthew, the Levi, we see a zealot. You see right here in this text, you see Simon, uh, the Canaanite. That is not talking about a person from a specific geographical location, but more importantly, it's from a Hebrew word that means to be zealous. He was a part of a movement that was called the Zealots. They had a nickname. They were called the Dagger Men. These men were against Rome, and they went and they hid knives in their clothes and they went up to Roman officials and they would stab them whenever they had a chance. Had little knives just stabbing people. All right? Jesus had thugs that he called. Cats from the street, from the hood. Cats that were passionate about stuff. He's not calling the smartest people, the most impressive people. That's just how Jesus works because that's just how Jesus is. Turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, really quick. Let your fingers do the walking, amen. John chapter 7, let's look at verse 14 and 15. Now Jesus is at a feast and and we see these words. John chapter 7, verse 14 to 15. And about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it? That this man has learning when he has never studied. So this is Jesus. The religious leaders are listening to him. Teach. They're like, man, how is it that this man has learned? How is it? How is it that he knows this? this is literally, literally, in the Greek means, how is it that he knows these letters so well? <laughs> Speaking of the Torah, and listen to Jesus' response. My teaching is not mine, but it is his, it, but his who sent me. If anyone does the Anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking from my own authority. So, Jesus himself did not go to some great school, he wasn't a part of their school systems. What did Jesus do? Jesus got into the word. We see early on in his life in Luke that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, right? grew in wisdom and stature. So God is not looking for people. He doesn't save us because we are impressive or because of what we know, but he saves us in order that we may know him, in order that we would separate ourselves from the world and make it our business to know him and to know him well. See, a lot of times we say, well, if I don't know this and if I don't know that then I can't share my faith with my coworkers, or I don't know enough or I, I don't have a PhD or I'm not the smartest brain or the, the sharpest knife in the in the kitchen drawer or whatever <laughs> and God is saying to you today that he, he has never called and found delight in the sharpest people he finds delight in people who find delight in him Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, really quick. Let your fingers do the walking. Acts chapter 2. What's wrong with this pastor? He's turning all these scriptures. Just read it. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 43. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. This is the early church, right? And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So this is the early church. They are devoting themselves to the apostles teaching to these 12 men who have been set aside and to fellowship in the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to knowing God and what is happening. All is falling upon the church and great things are happening and people are being added to the church daily. Turn to Acts chapter four. Acts chapter four, verse 13. Now. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. They were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. You see what set the apostles apart? Even after Jesus called them, they didn't go and say, well, let us go into these various schools and let us do this. No, they delighted themselves in Jesus. They found themselves at the feet of Jesus. That's what Jesus called them to do when he called them into the mountains so that they might be with him. And they were with him and people said, wait a minute, these men are uneducated. These men don't have PhDs. These men are fishermen, ex-tax collectors. These men are ex-thugs. These men are ex-farmers. How in the world is it that they are opening up our eyes in scripture and preaching like this? Oh, it is because they have been with Jesus. God calls ordinary broken people And he calls them to do extraordinary things like heal other people. And you do not have to be a person with an IQ like Einstein to be used by God. God has called you and he can use you if you sit at the feet of Jesus daily. If you make Jesus your delight, your abode, the world, Christianity spread because of common people with an uncommon message, a message of hope. Message of hope. Turn to Isaiah chapter 29 real quick. It's not my last one in this section. Y'all, so funny. Isaiah chapter 29. This was not something that was. Uh, Uh, Unique. Uh, Israel should have known this, right? The Pharisees should have known that God was about to do something different. It was—it's all throughout the prophets' writing. This is one of my favorites. Look at this, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. God says, "Look, one day I'm going to do something incredible. I'm going to do something great." And it's not going to be through those people who you consider to be wise. It's going to be through common people. Look at verse 15. Ah, you who had deep counsel from the Lord, whose deeds are in the dark and who say who sees us, who knows us. This is just like the Pharisees. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? The thing made shall, should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed, say of him who formed me, he has no understanding. It is, is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness and the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh oil in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. And Isaiah, God is telling them way back then in their there in the book of their prophets that, that God is going to do something through those who are considered not to be wise. And that is exactly what Paul is doing in First Corinthians chapter one, what we read early as a church. Paul saying, "Where is the wise? Where's the one who claims to have wisdom? Where's the philosopher? He says God is taking the lowly things of the world, the humble things of the world, and he is using them through the preaching of the gospel, through the preaching of the cross of Jesus, and he is allowing that to confound those who would call themselves wise. So what's your excuse today? Are you willing to throw your excuses out and willing to admit that God saved you in order to separate you? in order to empower you to share a great message, the greatest message. But the only way that God is going to use you is if you are spending time with Jesus. It's not always easy. It's not always easy. It's not always easy to run to Jesus, to the word of God. This week one day, it was about midweek, had a lot on my heart and, it was in the morning, my wife and I, we had just got through from, from eating and I gave her a hug and uh, we just hugged and embraced and talked for a little while. As I hugged her, I, I asked her not for the sake of this illustration, but I asked her to pray for me. And she said, well, what can I pray for? I said, my heart. My heart today does not want to go to God's word. My heart today is flat. i I'd rather rest then study. I'm not enthusiastic about spending time with Jesus this morning. Is that you sometimes? Are you willing to admit that sometimes it's not easy spending time with Jesus? Well, what should we do in moments like that? Well, the writer of uh, an 119th Psalm, we read these words, we read a, a man crying out to the Lord in a similar situation. He says, These, my soul clings to dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put ashamed. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. When you enlarge my heart. If you do not have a desire to spend time with Jesus and to spend time in his word, I beg you to beg God to enlarge your heart. As disciples of Jesus Christ, what separates us from the world, one of those things is a love for the word of God, a love for Jesus's words. And if that is not something that intoxicates you, if that's not something that you want more times than not, then you need to seriously seek and to see if Jesus has called you apart and saved you. Another thing we see with these disciples is not only were they very unimpressive from the world's standards, but we see that they are just a bunch of imperfect people. This list, as well as them not just having a, a, a great resume, is quite uh, funny because uh, these men really, by the world standards, were kind of messed up. Now, uh, we can go through a lot of them and point things out, right? We, we know Peter. We know Peter had an issue. We know his mouth was shaped like a foot because he constantly put his foot in his mouth. But uh, Peter wasn't the only one like this. We see in his text a, a man, by the, uh, in verse 17, we read these words, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Boanerges, that is, the son of Thunder. Now, we know John and James, they're brothers, all right, there's the sons of Zebedee. And Jesus gives them a nickname, and their nickname is Sons of Thunder. And I'm sure that they would want you to believe that they were nicknamed that because they were some prayer warriors. And when they prayed, the heavens just roared and things happened. But that's actually not why they received their name. That term in uh, the Greek, uh, most people, theologians believe that that was a term that was commonly used to speak of people who were hot-headed. Uh, So Jesus is giving out their nickname in his list and he's saying, oh, yeah, James and John, the hot headed ones. And John is the one who we call the apostle of love. Right. Uh, Because we read his epistles and it's all about love. But John was not all that always that way. John was quite unimpressive. John was a, a work in progress. We read two accounts where John spoke up and did something that he was probably embarrassed of. One is we see some other disciples of Jesus going around, praying for people, and they are being healed and delivered. And they are praying in Jesus' name. John runs back to Jesus and says, yo, Jesus, listen, there's some people up the way. They're actually praying and, and preaching, and they're doing it in your name. And Jesus is like, so, so what? As long as it's in my name, I'm cool with it. Jesus said, should we go and tell them to stop? He's like, No. They're doing a good thing. We see later on one day, Jesus has just got through from ministering and and pretty much uh, the the word was not received. And uh, John and James, they say to Jesus, they say, hey, Jesus, do you want us to call on heaven and have fire come down from heaven? Do you want us to pray to God and have God come and burn these people alive? Burn these people alive. Wait. Hot tempered. How about that go somewhere and preach go somewhere and share the gospel and afterwards if you heard me or one of the other ministers say hey we're going to pray because they did not receive the word today that God will burn that church up you say man those pastors got some issues God delights and he calls people who has issues You've got some issues. I've got some issues. Amen. We've got some issues. But that's who God chooses to use. This new community, this church is not full of impressive people. It's not full of perfect people. It's full of people who were once broken, who now have the antidote, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and who are being made whole day by day. We can walk through Mark. I I reread Mark this week just to to, to be able to get a visual of just how broken these people are. And did you know in every other chapter in the book of Mark, we see the disciples doing something stupid. We see them having a lack of faith. After Jesus does a miracle and feeds 5,000 with a few fish and a few loaves, they're in the exact same scenario uh, a few chapters later and they still are doubting Jesus' power. We see, Jesus, we see Peter uh, opening his big mouth and Jesus calling him uh, a Satan. We see them on a boat with Jesus and panicking, and Jesus says, oh, ye little fish. I mean, we see just broken people. People who come to church and think that they're coming to church to be around people who are whole and people who are perfect. I got news for you. You are sitting in the pews next to some great sinners. And if you don't believe it, you can follow me around for a day. Now, we don't boast in that and delight in that. We don't delight in the fact that God has given us grace. But we are sensitive to that. We are sensitive to that. This text gives us hope as we look at each and every one of these brothers and we say, you know, these men were messed up, I'm messed up but God can use me. The last thing I would like to point out in this text is this, that these men were committed. They were committed. They were unimpressive. They were imperfect. But they were committed. Look at verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered to, again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And we'll deal with this a little bit uh, in the weeks to come. But we see Jesus and these men, they have given up their homes, they have forsaken all, they are following Jesus around, and crowds are coming from everywhere. And it's so bad that they can't even eat. Uh, and a lot of stories in the gospel, they're just like, man, Jesus, I'm hungry. Right? Jesus at the well ministering to the woman uh, who... Uh, was uh, 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 unfaithful, who was an adulteress, what are the disciples saying? They're saying, I'm hungry, right? I'm hungry. Uh, They often gave up natural food for spiritual food. And they were so committed to Jesus that their family, we see Jesus' family here, but you have to know that their family as well thought that they were crazy. Does your family think that you're crazy because of the love and affection that you have towards Jesus? Jesus said, he who does not hate his mother, his brother, his sister, his wife, and himself, they are not worthy to follow me. Following Jesus is a full-time commitment. When Jesus separates us, when he says, I desire you, he separates us for a full-time job. We all are in full-time ministry. Jesus, the sinless one, was called crazy. They thought he should be in a nut house. God is raising up some people like that here. Some people who the world says should be somewhere. Put away. Away from everyone else. All but one. Every single one of these disciples were fully committed to Jesus except one. Church history teaches us, and and some are, are probably legend, that every single one of these men suffered a horrible death. Some of them was clubbed to death. Peter was crucified upside down. Some of them was stoned to death. Why? Because they had spent time with Jesus And spending time with Jesus had transformed their life to the point that they said to live as Christ and to die as Game. All but one. In this text, we read as we look at this list that there was one, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. Judas spent every day with Jesus, just like the rest of the disciples. Judas even went out and preached with the rest of the disciples. Jesus, Judas probably even laid hands on people and saw things happen just like the rest of the disciples. But Judas was not brought into the kingdom of God. Why? Because Judas loved stuff more than Jesus. Judas went through the motions and he followed Jesus with the hopes that Jesus would be his personal genie and that Jesus would give him whatever he wanted. He was infatuated with the gifts of Jesus, with the things that Jesus could possibly give. He probably was fascinated with the fact that Jesus turned a small meal into a great buffet because he's thinking about the money. Man, if Jesus can do this with a small meal, we can open up our own restaurant and we can do this. He was not committed to the person of Jesus to the divinity of Jesus, to the miracles of Jesus. But he was committed to stuff. This new community that Jesus is forming is full of inimpressive people, imperfect people. But I pray that it's not full, at least this church is not full, of people who are just going through the motions. Because they want Jesus to give them what they want. See, throughout the book of Mark, Jesus is pictured as a servant. But he's also pictured as an authority figure. Jesus demands us. He he demands us to, to come in line with him, not him to come in line with us. Jesus allowed Judas to walk with him every day. Even though he knew that Judas would betray him. Why? Because Jesus knew that through Judas' betrayal, that you and I, that we would come to know him. Jesus knew that he had to be betrayed in order that he would take up a cross. Jesus was willing to put up with this man's phoniness in order that other people would come to know Christ. But do you know that Jesus is willing to put up with our phoniness in order that other people come to Christ? Jesus is not afraid to use carnal Christians. On the last day, many will stand before Jesus and they will say, I did this in your name, I did this in your name, I did this in your name. And he will say, depart from me, I do not know you. Homie, I use you. You thought you were using me, but I was using you. People came to faith through you, even though you never put your faith in me. Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to put his life on the line for us, and he did. He suffered. He took the sins Of the world upon his shoulder. Though he was sinless. He was bruised for our iniquities. And crushed for our transgressions. He allowed our filth. To rest on him. In order that we would be his people. And in order that we would have life. And have it more abundantly. And today he is asking you as his people and often non-impressive people and imperfect people to look to his cross for faith, to continue to repent from our sins, and to live radically for him. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this new community that you have created, this new community that you have shaped, this community, Father God, that has been bearing the message of the cross for over 2,000 years that have spoken and, and continue to carry the message of the apostles. Father, I pray that we as a church, Lord, that we, Father God, would gather together and not look at what we don't have or who we are not, or not look at what we can't do, but to look at you and to conclude that we can do all things through you that we can reach our lost co-workers, that we can reach our lost family members, that we can reach our lost spouse with this message and that they can be saved. Help us, Father God, not to look at and to rest in our inabilities, but help us to rest in your ability. And help us to long for you, to cling for your word. Help us to be a community that is non conformative, that will not conform to this world, but that's willing to be transformed by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.